Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wittenberg to Westphalia is a strong and noble house, with a long and somewhat disreputable history, but we have fallen on hard times. Hosting fees, books, and the desire to get some kind of recompense for all my hard work have come together to threaten this nascent conglomeration of territories, even as they struggle for a unified identity. We need new recruits in the family to project our power, and money to hire mercenaries and maintain our rightful place on the map. So tell your friends, family, and favorite alcoholic beverages all about the show. Five-star written reviews on iTunes, Facebook likes, and comments on the website will help get new listeners. However, some portion of you out there are willing and able to do more. I see the luster in your eyes, the thirst for battle. To you brave folks, willing to stake it all for glory, I offer you this chance. Head to the website, wittenberg2westphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and find the store page. There you will find a donation button linked to PayPal. If you act now and click that button, and give a completely secure donation to the show of any amount that you so choose, you will have eternal glory. You will be able to choose your own snarky regnal name, which will be read on the air and inserted into the official Wittenberg to Westphalia family tree. Please keep it clean. The benefits are numerous. Use the tree to prove your noble lineage if you are attempting to defend a village from bandits. Print out the family tree and use it to start small fires. Tell your favorite bartender stories of our campaigns together. Whatever you choose to do with your exceptionally valuable glory, it will prove invaluable in allowing me to continue this show. This week, we have four new recruits who have flocked to our banner, mostly named Dave. These intrepid Davids, and one Martin, have all given their own hard-earned cash money to support this podcast, and for that we must salute them and grant them titles and honors. David Ainert I name David Chillyfingers, Viscount of Minneapolis. David Wallace is a man of wide renown and hardly needs my recognition. But as he answered the call in our time of need, I will grant his request to be named David von Weaselballs in these lands. Incidentally, in my opinion, Dave has identified the outer limit of the clean rating, so you know. Our final Dave, David Turnbull, shall hereafter be known as David Hefferfriend, second Marquis of Hungry Jacks and the warder of the Royal Rakali. Finally, we have our fourth recruit, the one not named Dave. He shall hereafter be known as Martin the Warrior, March Lord of the Royal Cheese. I thank you all for your loyal service, and with your help, and with help of many others, we will enjoy many more years of pillage in the name of our disreputable empire. And now, the show. There is a church on the summit of a hill near the monastery at Parmier. 
One day the canons were visiting the church, as it was their custom to do once a year, and carrying in solemn procession the body of their patron, the venerable martyr Anthony, when the count, who happened to be out riding, chanced to come across them. Showing no proper regard for God or the holy martyr or the religious procession, the count refused to display even the outward signs of respect and did not trouble to dismount. Instead, he passed ostentatiously by with his head held high in his customary arrogant manner. The venerable abbot of Mont-Saint-Marie of the Cistercian Order had come to the ceremony to preach and had joined in the procession. Seeing the Count's behaviour, he called out after him and said, Count, Count, you show no respect to your overlord, the Holy Martyr. Know that you will lose the lordship of this town which you hold merely as his vassal and that you will live to see yourself dispossessed of it by his power. On the Barbarity and Malice of the Count of Foix by Peter of Laveau de Cernay. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Hello and welcome to... From Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 14, Softball. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, it's been over a year since I posted the first episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, and I wanted to mark the occasion. Incidentally, I also have some other stuff going on in my life, and I needed to buy myself a bit of a break on the research. I wanted to make this a question and answer episode, but apparently I have been so thorough in my explanations that no one's had any questions. That, or I didn't give enough time. Or no one could remember my email. Fair enough, I can't half the time. But it's wittenbergtowestphalia at gmail.com, just for the record. I do have one issue I wanted to address from the comments of listener Joe from some time back. Sorry about that, Joe. Joe contacted me on the Facebook page to point out that in the episode on the Balkans, episode 10, I mixed up the crisis of the 5th century and the 3rd century when discussing the Battle of Adrianople. This may seem a minor slip, but dates are the framework that let us history types make narratives that make any lick of sense. My only excuse is that there's no zenith century in the Gregorian dating system, which is a silly way to do things. The worst part is that I spent a good hour before publishing checking and rechecking to make sure I had the right crisis and settled on the decision that was completely incorrect, and I mean, in retrospect, is obviously incorrect. So, so clearly incorrect. So for anyone out there who wants to know what century the crisis was that kicked off with the Battle of Adrianople, it was the crisis of the 5th century. 5th. That said, many thanks to Joe for pointing this out. For us podcasters, we have no PhD to fall back on or master's degree to wave around, Although, I I do have a master's degree, but it's not in history. So the only thing that keeps people coming back is the impression that I vaguely know what I'm talking about. Episodes that are full of errors make me look like a fool, and more importantly, make people not trust me and not want to listen to me. So please let me know if you hear anything that might need a correction or clarification. Even if you don't have a correction, I love hearing from listeners. Your feedback fuels my need to do this in my free time rather than learn to play tenor guitar or learn calligraphy. 
so please do get in touch. In particular, how do you feel about the new intro? I think it's funny, but is it a bit much? Moving on. So since I don't have any other questions on the line, and this is a celebratory episode, and we have, well, let me see, most of the episode left, I've decided to celebrate with an aside that has been a personal obsession of mine since middle school, the microstate of Andorra. I can get really philosophical about Andorra, but I do think it's a fascinating and valid subject of study, and we are actually at a nice point in the show's narrative to bring it in. I was going to do a section on it in episode 3, but ultimately cut it for time reasons. I think this was a good decision, both because episode 3 is great as is, and because waiting let me use the donation money I just received to buy some key research materials. Hooray! Anyway, let's dive into Andorra. Andorra is a European microstate located on the border between France and Spain. It's only about 180 square miles, which makes it about half the size of New York City and 14% the size of the state of Rhode Island. The country is best described as an amoeba-shaped one, which consists of six valleys deep in the heart of the Pyrenees Mountains that are, for the most part, connected to the La Valeria River system. The system structure is essentially shaped like a Y, with the right-hand arm pointing at France, the left-hand one pointed north into the heart of the Pyrenees Mountains, and the leg of the Y pointed south into Spain. As the La Valeria system flows eventually to the Ebro, the easiest communication into the valleys are from the Iberian side. At the confluence of the two arms of the Y is the capital city, if you will, of Andorra Lavala. A very small portion of Andorra in the extreme east of the country is hydrologically connected to Greater France via the La Arieja River. To modernize, Andorra is a beautiful mountainous land, full of flowering meadows and wintry comfort. Of course, for most of European history in the region, these same things made the country seem like a worthless backwater. Economically, most of the things I said in episode 10 about the lifestyle of the Balkans hold true here, but possibly more so. Andorra is deep in the mountains, arable land is limited, so much of the productive capacity of the country was bound up with pastoralism, driving flocks of sheep, horses, and donkeys into the high mountain meadows in the spring and bringing them down in the fall. Andorra also produced high-quality iron, but for much of its history it was the fertility of the valley bottoms and the produce of the sheep that kept mind and body together. This economic system was a bit more complex in Andorra than in the Balkans, but I don't have the time really to go in-depth. Suffice it to say that the economic system here had a lot in common with the system in place in the Alps, which I'll cover in a later episode that is likely to be entirely devoted to Alpine culture. And also the system was not self-sufficient in the normal meaning of the term. Many of the flocks would overwinter in France and Iberia. The iron production was mostly produced for trade outside the valley, and the local food production was not sufficient to support population growth. As a result, there was a yearly emigration tradition, and also a keen interest in outside trade. Trade brings us to communications, and for most of its history, there have been three pieces of logic underlying communications in the valleys. First, communication was along the valley floors unless you were trying to hide something. Second, the most valuable communication routes were those that connected Iberia with Greater France. Third, communication with Greater France is not easy anywhere, and Andorra is not a popular pass. So the biggest trade partner for mundane goods was the Catalan region of Iberia. But for more exotic goods, goods that maybe you shouldn't be carrying, goods that were valuable enough that it would be worth your while to stuff them in a spare pocket or two and walk over a mountain in winter to sell them, there was a brisk trade all through Andorra's history. As a result, traditional costume often favored warm clothes with large numbers of pockets. Andorra also became highly valued for its production of mules, 
the best kind of animals for walking over inconvenient mountain passes. The name Andorra may be Bosque in origin, meaning something like Ten Springs, or High Spring, or the High Windy Place with Iron, or any of a number of other different things. Celtic origins are also possible. There is a long-standing story that it was named for a valley in the Levant which bears a striking resemblance to Andorra. This story is probably not true, but it has its advocates. Whatever the case, there is evidence of human habitation in Andorra since the Neolithic, and, like their Bosque neighbors, there is little evidence of Iberian artifacts making their way up into the valleys. The one major mention of them in the Roman period comes from Polybius, who records some interactions between an Andocene people and the Carthaginians under Hannibal during their march into Italy. It is possible that the Andorans are the rump of a larger people that was squeezed back into their valley by outsiders in later times, but it's equally possible that the wily Hannibal was choosing to utilize a secondary pass to keep his opponents guessing. Or the name could be a coincidence. Or Polybius may have made the entire event up years later. We will probably never know for sure. When Iberia and Greater France were brought into the Roman Empire, the area was probably Bosque, but that's only my interpretation based on the limited importation of outside artifacts and a large number of Bosque place names. Unlike the other Bosque areas, Andorra seems to have gradually assimilated into the wider imperial community, though it was never exactly a sought-out destination. The best evidence for this process comes in the later Christianization process that undoubtedly followed the Latinization process that probably happened earlier. Documentation is sparse to non-existent, but the foundation of a bishopric in the nearby city of Urgell and the monastery of Saint Cerny Tavernoles seems to have gradually converted the valleys to Christianity, even as the monastery gradually became the main landlord in the valleys. The evidence for all this is pretty sparse, but we can say that by the time of the fall of the Roman Empire, the Valley of Andorra was mostly Latin-speaking, and most definitely Christian. At any rate, the current language of the valleys is Catalan, which is a Latin derivation. After the fall of the Roman Empire, the Christian institutions of the valley were severely damaged during the Islamic invasions. Most narrative histories of Andorra start with the story of Charlemagne, who promised to reward the men of the valleys for aiding in his rearguard actions in, near, in a nearby battle. Ultimately, his son, Louis the Pious, put the valley under the jurisdiction of the bishops of Urgell rather than the lords of Urgell, helping them maintain some degree of de facto independence. This is a nice story, but the idea that the men from the completely unwarlike valleys of Andorra would have played any kind of part in the events depicted in the Song of Roland, which is the case in at least some of the stories, would be suspect even if nothing else about the documents were suspicious. Sadly, every source I've consulted made it quite clear that these documents are obvious 10th century forgeries. What is known is that Charlemagne established the March of Urgell as part of his complex of fortified border regions in northern Iberia, intended as a bulwark against the Islamic rulers of that region. Some of these entities, such as the March of Barcelona, eventually fell to the Muslims after the reign of Louis the Pious. Some, such as Navarre, represented native populations. As we saw in episode 3, there were even kingdoms founded by renegade Visigoths who founded Christian kingdoms without the help of the Franks. It would be reasonable to suggest that the area of the Valley of Andorra was largely owned by the bishop at this point, who took over the land from the monastery as a result of the destruction of the monastery following the Islamic invasions, and that in the 10th century the bishops were struggling to assert their independence against the Counts of Urgell. After all, you don't forge documents saying something if you aren't trying to prove it to someone who would lose out in the case of the veracity of the document. 
One other thing that's clear is that the people of the valley largely supported the bishop's claim, as an attempt by the Count of Urgell to build a castle in the valley resulted in the violent expulsion of the construction crews in a valley-wide riot. The reasons why they felt this way can best be understood by expanding our focus a little bit. With the Carolingian Empire a distant memory, with the monarchs of France distant and ineffectual, and with the Islamic Emirate of Andalusia long since driven away due to internal strife, the entire region on both sides of the Pyrenees was characterized by a power vacuum. Local strongmen were the only powers worth considering, and every city, town, and village was struggling to assert its local rights against their overlords, as their overlords sought more territory and more power. The Counts of Urgell were no exception, and had made great gains by turning their backs on the mountains that had sheltered them, and seeking territory in the more fertile lowlands to the south. Ultimately, the Counts of Urgell were subsumed into the county of Barcelona, which was the core of the Principality of Catalonia. Local Andorran landowners were also part of this process, building fortified mansions in the villages reminiscent of those we see being built in Italian cities around the same time, though on much less grand a scale. In this context, ecclesiastical landlords were often preferable to secular ones. This is not a universal across time and space. We have records of warlike bishops slaughtering their parishioners, but much of the evidence we have from southwestern Europe for the early Middle Ages shows that land taken over by the church had more of a tendency towards entropy than those held by the laity. We can speculate any number of reasons as to why this is, but I'm happy with speculating that it was a violent and lawless time and place, and the church was best able to push its claims when there were well-established regional systems of government in place. Southwestern Europe was very fond of Roman law, and so was the church, but the enforcement of that law often fell to local power structures, usually the same petty strongmen against whom the church was attempting to assert its rights. In the dispute between the bishops and the counts of Urgell over Andorra, it's possible but unlikely that the counts were swayed by the forgeries. Possibly the counts were more beholden to the remaining Carolingian power structure than the local lords, but again, this seems like an outside chance. More likely, they could not be bothered to fight the bishop over a few miserable mountains when the riches of Catalonia lay to their south. The counts ultimately sold their rights in the valley to the bishops for a modest fee in 1133. This left the bishop with the problem of how to govern and protect his land from interlopers. Ultimately, the bishop gave the land as a fief to a local landowner, one Arnaldetta of Cabouet, whose family ruled the valley in the bishop's name. In practice, the villagers of the valley were likely developing even at this point in the direction of communal self-government, following the model of the village communes seen already in Italy, and which was also common in southern France and northern Spain. That said, having a single wealthy family be responsible for the enforcement of the law and on hand to deter interlopers suited the bishops and the locals alike. In the inevitable logic of the Middle Ages, the fiefdom of the Cabouets would lead to conflict. By 1208, the small family of the Cabouets had married into the much larger family of the Counts of Foix, rulers of a major territory just to the north of Andorra. By itself, the new reality of a major secular ruler holding territory and fief from an ecclesiastical landlord would probably have led to serious conflict with the bishops one way or the other. But the Counts of Foix were more than just major landlords. The Counts of Foix were notoriously warlike mountain troubadours native to the northern slopes of the Pyrenees in the Languedoc region. If you think of a combination of Natty Bumpo from the Pathfinder series and Gurney Halick from the Dune series, along with Lancelot from Monty Python's Holy Grail, you'll have something closely approximating the character of the average Count of Foix. 
If you'd like to learn more about the exploits of the Counts of Foix, you should definitely listen to Sharon Eastall's excellent history of the Crusades. In addition to doing my opening quote today, Sharon is currently doing a series of episodes entirely devoted to the Crusade against the Cathars. The Counts of Foix were heavily involved in the Crusade against the Cathars, on the side of the Cathars. This was probably inevitable anyway, as the Counts of Foix had a tendency to hate people telling them what to do, and murdering people who told them things they didn't like, which included more than a few priests, apparently. That being said, Mrs. of Foix, the daughter of the Cavaways, happened to be a Cathar herself, which made things very interesting. It's no embellishment to say that for five generations the Lords of Foix were just one step ahead of the Inquisition, and that their leadership was one of the key elements of the southern French barons being able to fight the lords of northern France to a standstill. Given Mrs. of Foix's religious persuasion, it's probably unsurprising that the Count of Foix ejected the Inquisition from the valleys, which created a conflict with the bishop in 1233. For the next 39 years, war was always just over the horizon, and disorder was reported to be common. Nonetheless, the bishops didn't want to face the terrifying mountain men of Foix, and the lords of Foix were kept busy fighting off waves of crusaders. So the issues of the valley were always on the back burner. By the year 1273, however, other distractions had fallen away, and events came to a head. There's a story that's been bouncing around the internet for some time that may be traditional and maybe someone just made it up, but it's a fun story and it contains some elements of truth. In the story, the bishop and the count both decided that they had had enough. They called up their forces, donned their armor. Banners streaming, they marched their forces up the passes, spoiling for the final showdown. After many days of marching up precipitous mountain slides, dodging falling boulders, and saying hello to the local goats, the two armies arrayed themselves in the valley. The bishop came forward, as did Count Roger Bernard III, grandson of the man mentioned earlier. Depending on the telling, both of them looked around at the complete moonscape that surrounded them, and then one of them said, Are we really going to die over this worthless patch of sheep country? Someone produced a table. They hammered out a deal right there and then, and then they went home. We're pretty sure this is not how things went down, and my interpretation may be a bit flipped for the tastes of any native Andorans who happen to be listening, but it contains some elements of truth, as I said. The bishops didn't want to fight, and Raymond Bernard had other things on his mind. Foix had hitherto been a vassal of the kings of Catalonia, but by 1272, the king of France had gotten involved and the Crusades had taken on a certain inevitable logic that didn't bode well for people who supported the Cathars and the Catalonian crown. The Catalonians had started cutting their losses, and the Counts of Foix had been actively seeking to disentangle themselves from Iberian politics and reorient themselves as loyal vassals of the king of France. Part of this policy required making themselves someone that the Inquisition would not want to try to burn alive. Raymond Roger III's father had already begun making a show of hunting Cathars, and R Raymond Roger himself had continued this policy. A war with the Bishop of Urgell over this worthless valley would not figure prominently in these plans, and a deal with the bishop would likely go a long way towards helping the church forget the more colorful aspects of the history of the House of Foix. To that end, the two sides met, and, with the mediation of the new king of Aragon, signed a pariage. A pariage was a very common legal form in the south of France at that time that split sovereignty over a territory between two or more parties. The specifics could vary quite considerably, but in Andorra, the deal was that the count would administer justice and law and order with the approval of the bishop, 
and that the people of the valley would pay tribute to the two sovereigns on alternating years. So on even years it went to one side, and on odd years it went to the other. Interestingly, the amount paid was different for each side. The payments to the bishop were fixed at 4,000 sous, subject to the occasional renegotiation between the two sides, whereas the count could set his own price. Andorra, not being the only issue between the two neighbors, the pariage also contained clauses resolving trade issues in other border areas. So ended the conflict between the two co-princes. But the mad dance of medieval marriage politics means that the story does not end there. The Counts of Foix had, under Roger Bernard, moved from being terrifying mountain people to become some of the more loyal, wealthy, and renowned supporters of the French king in Languedoc. Roger Bernard III, more well known for his poetry than his propensity for violence, proved himself every ounce the Frenchman by growing his realm with love rather than hate. Or with marriage, anyway. Roger Bernard ended up inheriting the county of Bern from his father-in-law, more than doubling the size of his territory, although the lands were not contiguous. Raymond Bernard's son Gaston represented a return to form for the Foix dynasty, and his exploits included, among other things, saving five damsels in distress from the Tower of an Enemy on his way back from serving in the Northern Crusades. The result of this was a new war between himself and the enemy, and a great story. Unfortunately, but produced only one son, who himself died without issue. Foix and Bern were then passed to the French crown, who passed it to a new dynasty, ultimately ending up in the hands of one Archambault, who fought on both sides of the Hundred Years' War, as well as dabbling in Spanish politics, before marrying his daughter to the kings of Navarre. The kingdom of Navarre has come in and out of our story a few times, and here it charges to the fore, so let's give a bit of background. The Duchy of Vasconia apparently had some character under Charlemagne, but given that it was the Bosques who killed Roland, one will be forgiven for being a bit cynical about the Carolingian claims to the region. They were probably at most a loosely allied kingdom. Certainly by the time of the Empire's fall, it was being called the Kingdom of Pamplona, after its capital city of Pamplona, oddly enough. I'm just going to refer to it as Navarre from here on in to avoid confusion. Navarre went on to conquer a few of the other marcher duchies and petty Visigothic kingdoms in its area. It reached its greatest extent by 1035, holding a huge chunk of territory in northeastern Iberia. Unfortunately, the kingdom fell afoul of the inevitable succession issues that medieval political entities faced, and it spun off the duchies of Castile and Aragon, both of whom were being called kingdoms within a generation. Both set about undertaking rapid expansions to the south, with Aragon ultimately taking over Catalonia in a marriage alliance. Navarre itself ended up in a personal union with the kings of France for several generations, before becoming independent again as a result of French monarchial politics. As Navarre bordered directly on British-owned Gastonia, it was embroiled in the Hundred Years' War, working vigorously with or against the British in their efforts to put Pedro el Cruel back on the throne of Castile. This became a major distraction to the British, and many observers note that they wasted many needed resources that could have been better used in France proper. For the Navarrese, the impact was even more devastating, as the dynastic struggles and instability in Castile spilled over the border, destabilizing the none-too-stable Navarrese kingdom. Navarre's king was during this time either too weak or too preoccupied with French and British dynastic politics to look after his own kingdom, and the presence of a large number of increasingly unemployed veterans of the Hundred Years' War did not calm the situation. Groups of aristocrats formed loose alliances and began a generation of feuding known as the War of the Bands. 
Archambault de Foix was partly able to get himself back into the good graces of the French crown by helping to suppress the violence that spilled over the border. The period that followed is simply insane. Everyone was fighting everyone. Everyone was named John. So to avoid another table-flipping situation, I'm going to summarize. The nobility of Navarre split roughly into two factions. These two factions were being interfered with by a number of outside powers, namely Aragon, Castile, the County of Foix, and the King of France. It was in this context that Archambault's son married the daughter of one of the claimants to the throne. The King of France ultimately decided that the Count of Foix was his man in the race, and so backed the Count of Foix's son-in-law in the ultimate play for the throne. The King of France ended up being the biggest, baddest guy on the block, and so the final settlement ultimately backed the King of France's candidate, the Count of Foix's son-in-law, but with the proviso that the King of Castile was acting as the executor of the agreement. Castile was unhappy with the situation, but so long as the French crown was backing Archambault's son-in-law, there was nothing they could do about it. I should point out that this matters to us because Archambault died without a male heir, and so the County of Foix ended up going to the King of Navarre. Several generations passed, but then in 1505, the entirety of Europe, including the Pope, declared war on France in the Second War of the League of Cambrai. Navarre's royal family found itself without a protector and labeled as heretics by their neighbor, Ferdinand the Catholic of Castile, unifier of Spain, for not being energetic in the assault against their protector, the King of France. At the war's conclusion, the main body of the Kingdom of Navarre had been annexed by Castile but their royal family and the royal title held on in those parts of Navarre that had existed on the northern slopes of the Pyrenees, the, the French side. Though now not much more than middle-rank French aristocrats, the family kept using the titles, King and Queen of Navarre, and maintained the fiction of independently held land and institutions. Importantly for our story, they also still held on to the ancestral possessions of Foix and Bern, inherited from Archambault. In 1560, Queen Joan of Navarre and her consort, Antonine of Bourbon, became early converts to Calvinism, and helped spread Protestantism around France. In her own kingdom, Joan had the Bible translated into Basque, and circulated it widely. This was the inception of the Wars of Religion in France, which pitted the Protestant Huguenots against the Catholic League. I'm going to address this much, much more fully in the main narrative of the show, but suffice it to say that after 36 years of massacres, assassination, and war, the country was devastated and was more divided than it had been at the start. More critically, the Catholic League had started assassinating kings who were not energetic enough in the pursuit of Protestants for the tastes of the Catholic League. This led to a rather close pruning of the royal family tree and the alienation of a large number of moderates. As a result, Joan's son Henry, King of Navarre and Duke of Bourbon, ended up being the next in line for the throne despite being a Protestant. After some wrangling, Henry converted to Catholicism, made some witty quips about Paris being worth a mass, and was crowned King Henry IV, King of France. So it was that in 1589, the possessions of the Counts of Foix ended up squarely in the hands of the French crown. In the years that followed, Henry's Bourbon monarchy would go on to great heights, producing the most famous kings of France, and ultimately ascending the guillotine in the guise of Louis XVI, a place no king of France had ever gone before. Consider what all this means for Andorra. Sure, in 1272, the pariage was just a real estate deal conducted by distant nobles, one of many similar deals conducted by the many noble families of the region. 
it had worked out well for the Andorans, giving them the protection of a secular lord with the right of appeal to an ecclesiastical one, but it was nothing special. Oh, how things had changed. The Cathar Crusades had brought the armies of the north to the gates of the south, and ultimately replaced southern Roman law with northern customary law. Many, if not most, of the pariages of the south were simply discarded as the northern nobles took over the regions and set up their own form of administration. Those that did still exist were now securely bound up in the territory of a single monarchy, the two parties owning whatever region it was, both ultimately owing allegiance to the French king. This was not yet a state, but it was also unquestionably in the control of a single political entity. To the south, the counties of Castile and Aragon had become great kingdoms, and the marriage of Ferdinand the Catholic to Isabella of Aragon had unified Spain, expelling the forces of Islam that had once threatened Andorra itself. Again, petty local institutions were brought within regional and even national political establishments. There had been a lot of feudal bickering and interference across the mountains at one time. This culminated in the conquest of Navarre. But since the wars of Cambrai, the mountains had become a de facto border between two clearly separate political entities. But where did that leave Andorra? The world had moved around them, but they had no clear loyalty to either side. The Bishop of Urgell was clearly part of the new Spanish kingdom, and now the Count of Foix was the King of France. But the Bishop held his lands in fief from the now long-defunct Carolingian Empire, not from the King of Spain. In other words, the land in the valleys belonged to no one ultimately other than the bishop. Even if the king of France's possession of the land was somewhat theoretically held in fief from the bishop, the pariage had pretty clearly established that they were both equal partners in the ownership of the land, which meant that the ownership of the land spanned the border. If Andorra had been bigger or more valuable, perhaps the situation would have been different. But as it was, there was a legal settlement in place, the land was peaceful, law and order was maintained, so no one had any reason to fight a war or start any kind of political conflict over a bunch of valleys whose only contents was a bunch of sheep. Between the signing of the Pariage in 1278 and the execution of Louis XVI, Andorra was a pretty quiet place internally. A second pariage was signed in 1288 that ironed out some of the issues of the first, but is otherwise unremarkable. In 1419, the bishop and the representative of the Count of Foix granted official documentary recognition to the Council de la Terra, or the Council of the Land. Semi-official communal governments had likely existed previously, but this formalized their meeting as a body to represent the entire valley, and this council is the ancestor of the general council that forms the legislative branch of the Andorran government even today. The relationship between the Protestant Henry of Navarre and the Bishop of Urgell seems to have been relatively cordial, although Henry of Navarre did expel the Inquisition from the valleys in 1601, something that was probably not mourned overmuch in the valleys. The final important event of the period before the French Revolution, though maybe it didn't seem like it at the time, was the issuance of a law by Louis XV exempting the valleys of Andorra from various customs duties. This would become very important as time went on, but at the time it was more of an act of charity. The people in the valleys were considered to be desperately poor in their resource-poor environment, with the only real asset they had in hand was their iron production, which was only valuable if they could trade it externally. Similar laws were later enacted on the Spanish side of the mountains. To many, the French Revolution marks the end of the early modern period and the beginning of the truly modern period. 
Certainly for Andorra, it was the first time in a long time that external events intruded into the valley. After the execution of Louis XVI, the new officials of the French Republic refused to take the tribute of the Andorran Valley as it was thought to represent a holdover feudal institution. This caused something of a crisis in the valley, partly because without the French sovereign there was nothing to balance out the power of the Bishop of Vergel, and the French sovereign had been the one more strictly responsible for the maintenance of law and order, but the Andorran representatives couldn't have been ignorant of the fact that the supporters of the revolution in southern France were busily taking over other semi-feudal, semi-independent political entities that were sort of in and sort of out of the ownership of the French monarchy. It seems to have been a rather tense time for the people of the valleys, who were casting around trying to find someone to guarantee them their independence. Great consternation was the order of the day until the representatives of the valley were finally able to get an audience with one Napoleon Bonaparte, who was only too happy to accept the feudal tribute of the valleys. When Bonaparte took over Spain, there were some anxious moments as French troops threatened to traverse the valley, but ultimately they left without much fuss. During the restoration period, things continued much as before, with kings, emperors, and presidents accepting the do-nothing job of co-prince of the valleys. The bishops at this time were much more active in their role of co-prince, setting up institutions on the Spanish model in the valleys. The people of the valley, always eager to balance things out, would inevitably bring in parallel French institutions within a few decades. The bishop was also notable for opposing things that would encourage moral decay. For example, the bishop opposed the construction of casinos in the valley, which was a successful policy, though only after much, sometimes violent, debate. The bishop also opposed the growing of tobacco in the valley, which was a very unsuccessful policy, as we'll see in a little bit. In general, the policies of the bishops of Urgell are very interesting, as they can be seen to sort of portray the doctrines of the Catholic Church in a period when it had an increasingly limited amount of power, but when it still viewed itself as an institution for social good. So the bishop did things like opposing gambling and tobacco usage, while encouraging things like education and the construction of roads. Probably the most important reform in Andorra during this period happened in 1866, when the co-princes approved a reform of the way that the general council was elected. The so-called New Reform of 1866 expanded the suffrage to all heads of household, and remained in place off and on until 1947. If that seems like a long time for a country to be run by feudal institutions, you're right. For much of Andorra's history, it's been characterized by a large amount of political inertia in terms of its governing institutions. And if the valleys have been largely peaceful, they have been characterized by sporadic outbreaks of unrest caused by the inability of the institutions to deal with the increasing pace of the world around them. A case in point is the 1880 revolution, based largely on demands for economic and social reforms, but specifically galvanized by the desire for casino gambling. Apparently the unrest continued for five months, until the posting of a French brigade of troops just over the border in France convinced everyone to go back to business as usual. They never did get that casino. An increasingly important part of Andorra's economy during this period was the tobacco industry. This may seem strange, if you know anything about Andorra and you know anything about tobacco, one would not think that tobacco would grow very well there. And, in fact, it does not. 
The specific breed of tobacco that has managed to survive in Andorra, natively, has been described as a horrible, ugly, black-looking thing, which is not considered very appetizing in tobacco products. Nonetheless, Andorra had the enviable position of having a very favorable set of trade policies with its neighbors, and very low internal taxes. As a result, one could procure tobacco products very cheaply in Andorra, without paying any tax on them, move them over to France or Spain, and sell them at rates which undercut tobacco products being sold there. Eventually people started making enough money on this that they started importing more palatable tobacco from the New World to process into finished tobacco products in Andorra and then resell. Obviously the authorities in Spain and France were rather unhappy about this, and so they structured a deal to try and deal with the situation. Basically, Andorra could grow as much tobacco as they wanted, and they could import as much as they wanted to to replace crops that had been destroyed by accidents or fires or what have you, but they couldn't go beyond what they could produce internally. The idea was that the Andorans would be limited to the horrible, gross, black tobacco that they could grow themselves, which wouldn't be appetizing for consumers in Spain or France, and so Andorra would only produce for local consumption. Instead, Andorans nearly ceased cereal production and began the mass cultivation of tobacco, even opening up new fields for their disgusting, valueless product. The farmers would sell their worthless produce at huge profit to the local factories, who would burn the crop out back and import an equivalent weight of much more appetizing tobacco from the New World, which was then converted into cigars and cigarettes for cheap distribution in Spain and France at a massive markup. During the various civil wars of Spain, Andorra was able more or less to keep aloof, even switching allegiance from a bishop implicated in the Carlist revolt to one that was not. Occasionally, the Andorans asked the French to deploy police into the country to prevent incursions, or to restore law and order if there were internal unrests, but these situations resolved quickly and peacefully for the most part. The most dangerous situations developed during the Spanish Civil War, the big one with Franco. Andorra was not immune to the restive mood in the air before the war, particularly as the country did not yet enjoy universal male suffrage, and the constitution was barely able to provide an administration capable of managing a 20th century town, let alone a country. The councils of the country were often at loggerheads with the co-princes, who dissolved the council in 1932 and called in French troops to help keep the peace before the elections in 1933, a wildly unpopular move. To keep the crowds happy, universal male suffrage was passed, but never implemented, and was formally repealed in 1941. The government elected under these conditions was then forced to impose a modern taxation regime for the first time in the country's history, in order to pay for the administration, also very unpopular. To be fair, the administration was now doing things like run schools and maintain tarmacked roads in the mountains that they hadn't done when everyone was a bunch of sheep farmers. The French troops were eventually asked to leave, but then they were brought back with the outbreak of war in Spain in 1936, and remained there until the start of World War II, at which point the country sheltered under the neutrality of the Bishop of Urgell. During this firmament, one of the more colorful moments of Andorran history occurred. One Boris Gossirev, a white Russian, possibly an intelligence operative, and convicted financial fraudster, turned up in Mallorca in 1930 pretending to be an English gentleman. He had relationships with a number of wealthy women in the Palma expat community before being expelled in 1934. He then went to Andorra, where he found a country simmering with discontent, and made contact with monarchist groups in both Spain and France. 
Somehow he was able to present citizenship credentials and presented some plans for reforming the government to the council of the country. Here's where things get interesting. Someone noticed that he was asking to be appointed personally to most of the key positions in the government. Ultimately, he was expelled from the country, but remember, law and order were the purview of the co-princes, not the council. Boris ultimately turned up in Urgell, where he declared himself the legitimate king of Andorra, representing the dispossessed Bourbon monarchy, and declared war on the bishop of Urgell. He claimed to have 80 or so Spanish volunteers, although whether that's true is not clear. Despite never setting foot back in the country, he managed to depose the general council, appoint a provisional government, promulgate a constitution, and issue a court circular before being arrested and deported to Portugal by the Guardia Seville. According to some sources, however, he was given nearly unanimous support by the general council, who may have viewed the establishment of a monarchy as a way to get out from the rule of the interfering co-princes. Once the authorities got involved, it seems that the council backpedaled rather quickly, and between the disruptions of the Spanish Civil War and World War II, records weren't kept very well, and it's hard even today to understand exactly what took place. I should note here that there's a bunch of stories about Boris circulating the internet, based apparently on Russian sources, that claim that Boris actually succeeded in his revolution, and ruled the country for a number of years, before eventually being expelled by the Vichy French government. This is not true. The sources we do have on hand are pretty clear about that, and the fact is that a number of the people he was looking to for support, such as the remaining members of the Bourbon family of France and the uh, surviving members of the Spanish royal family, both publicly disavowed him. At any rate, once Boris ended up in Portugal, he was swiftly re-deported to France, which deported him again. He bounced around the world for several more years before ultimately settling in a refugee camp in France in 1939. During the war, he somehow ended up as a civilian contractor working for the Vichy French forces on the Eastern Front in World War II. Somehow he survived the Eastern Front and was arrested by the Americans in 1945. He was released as he was not a German and then ended up in Germany where he was arrested by the Communists in 1948 as a German collaborator. He was sent to Siberia. He managed to survive that, too. He was released and resettled in Germany in 1956, and lived a quiet life until his death in 1986. It's really not clear if he was a madman or a conman, and statements made by him are entirely unreliable. We ultimately may never really know what happened in 1934. The World War II years in Andorra were a tense couple of years, as they were sandwiched between Nazi-occupied France and the fascist regime of Franco. The Germans occupied the country in 1940, and Franco tried to do the same, but the Bishop of Urgell managed to talk everyone into leaving. During the war, the Andorans did well for themselves by playing a key role in the underground smuggling routes out of Europe. The Vichy French authorities tried to put a stop to this by occupying the country in 1944, but at this point, that government's days were numbered, and everyone knew it. The internal issues that had riven the country in the previous decade were stuffed into the background by the situation, with the conservatives temporarily ascendant. Andorra's fetal tourist industry hosted spies and smugglers and put on a show of being carefree, with the centerpiece being Radio Andorra, a popular radio station playing all the hits and probably being infiltrated by the Nazis. One gets the impression of a Casablanca of the Pyrenees, as the forces pulling the strings acted like everything was fine, while even the local conservatives knew that their antics were driving the country into a more liberal future. Once the war ended, much of the pressure was released, 
1947, the Council reinstated universal male suffrage. The victory of the Allies in World War II changed everything for Andorra. Franco's Spain was left as something of a pariah state, allowed to exist due to Cold War fears, but isolated by a Europe that had a somewhat emotional reaction to fascism. That said, Andorra had favorable trade deals with both sides. As the French economy revived, Andorra came into its own as the world's largest duty-free shop. El Pas de la Casa on the French border went from being a collection of seasonally occupied shelters for herdsmen to becoming a full-on city. Machine parts and consumer goods from France were imported and resold to Catalonian industrialists. The country may not be overly proud of being Franco's window on the world, but the relative prosperity of the anti-Franco Catalonia helped shield this liberal, anti-fascist part of Spain from some of Franco's excesses, and Catalonian industrialists were to play a significant role in Spain's subsequent rejection of fascism after the death of Franco. The first ski slope opened in Andorra in 1958, also in Pasta la Casa, suddenly adding even more impetus for tourism. Come for the duty-free trade goods, stay for the dangerous winter sports. Though the tourism industry had its roots in the pre-war period, the surging global economy and trade produced a lot of easy capital to reinvest in this sector. Hotels and resorts sprang up almost overnight. Additionally, the newfangled automobile made Andorra much more accessible. Andorra never has been connected to the rail network of Europe, and so the ability of tourists to arrive by a different method of transportation made a huge difference. When Spain re-entered the global economy in 1973, the stream of tourists turned into a flood. Andorra became a highly sought-after destination for Europeans in the 70s. It had cheap, high-quality shopping with imports from around the world, world-class skiing, and resort hotels built around natural hot springs. On the crest of this rising prosperity in contact with the outside world, women's suffrage was passed in 1970. The birth of the EU and the entry of both Spain and France into the community threatened the special status of Andorra, but by this point, things had taken on a logic of their own. Andorra was now home to a number of banks, which, thanks to Andorra's low-tax status and anonymous depositor laws modeled on those of the Swiss, became a sought-out destination for the cash of the rich and famous. This put them on the bad side of most of the world's financial regulators, but Andorra's years as a bank haven helped ease the transition into the EU. Today, Andorra is not a full EU member, but has again negotiated a very favorable trade position with that body. With its status as a giant duty-free restored, the country has gradually tightened its banking laws to come into line with international standards. The political institutions of the country, as you might expect, were not designed for the massive changes that have occurred in the last 50 years. Things came to a head in the 80s, when President Sarkozy of France refused to accept Andorra's tribute unless it began governmental reforms in earnest. This led to a productive period of soul-searching, spearheaded by a UN advisory panel that pointed out that the majority of the country was not Andorran citizens and enjoyed no special protections under the Constitution. When it came right down to it, the Andorran equivalent of a constitution was a real estate deal that guaranteed no one any kind of constitutional rights, let alone dealing with issues like urban planning and pollution control. Constitutional scholars and local leaders convened a process that took several years, but ultimately resulted in the Constitution of 1993. Rights were guaranteed, and the traditional institutions of the country were placed in a more official framework. The institution of the co-princes was maintained, 
but the payments were stopped. These payments had not been adjusted for inflation in quite some time, and at this point were purely ceremonial anyway. For interest's sake, the final payment to the Bishop of Urgell consisted of 2.7 euros and sundry chickens, capons, hams, and cheeses. The final payment to the President of France was 36 euros. What does all this tell us? Why have I spent half an episode on Andorra? Most importantly, why on earth does Andorra exist? These are all intertwined questions, but let's take that last one first. The big issue is that the Bishop of Urgell never held his lands in fief from anyone else but Charlemagne. If he'd held it in fief from the Counts of Urgell, Andorra would be Spanish today. Or if he held it in fief from the Counts of Toulouse, it would be French. But neither is the case. The Counts of Foix derive their claim from the bishops, and so ultimately the ownership of the land is up in the air. Having the authority over the land split between the bishop and the Counts of Foix 50-50 further split the claim of sovereignty over the border. This was never a goal of anyone. At the time, there was no Spain and there was no France. The bishop and the counts were just doing a real estate deal, and the people of the valley were just happy to be able to balance the one off the other. Over time, however, the pariage became the single most important legal document in Andorra's history. Even today, the document represents the core justification of Andorra's sovereignty, something which to modernize is absolutely surreal. It would be like if the U.S. Constitution, rather than defining why and how the government derives its right to exist from the people, was instead a deal between Mexico and Canada, professing their eternal friendship, outlining the shape of the U.S. government, and also resolving who could trade sheep with Japan. Over time, the very illogicality of Andorra worked in its favor. After the War of the League of Cambrai, Andorra and its region were so deep in the heart of the mountains as to not be worth outside interference. Even Louis XIV, despite being actively in a state of war with Spain for many years, did not interfere with the situation in the valleys. Since then, most French and Spanish people have viewed the Pyrenean border as inviolate, the very definition of a natural border, and then have not paid all that much attention to rationalizing it. Despite the blip that was Bonaparte and the tense years of World War II, Andorra has survived because most people didn't even know it existed, and if they knew, they didn't care. Without outside interference, the shepherds and traders of Andorra made their way in the world with a certain inertia until the economics of the post-war period dragged Andorra out of the Middle Ages and into Europe. As to why spend time on it, I find it's a real fun story, and I hope you agree. It's also, almost despite itself, an important story. Andorra's past touches on a really broad swath of European political and social politics. We've learned about the land-holding systems of the Middle Ages, the marriage practices of the nobility, and seen the minor political entities of a hilly region of Iberia form into one of the most recognizable states of the modern world, Spain. Andorra has a fascinating position as a completely innocuous, peaceful valley that's just over the hill from some of the key moments of European history, from the March of Hannibal to the Wars of Religion and beyond. In the modern period, the story of Andorra shows how some of the most important forces that shape the world are non-military, as Andorra has been repeatedly revolutionized by the forces of economics and negotiation rather than the gun. But there are two larger issues that I hope you take away from this. First, I'd like you to start taking a really good look at borders and how they impact culture. If Andorra had not been on a border, it is likely that, like many mountain villages, it would be basically abandoned today maybe home to a national park, or otherwise home to a small village servicing large ranchers. By way of example, my family's ancestral village in Gien-sur-Cure 
is an agricultural village nestled in a small highland valley in the heart of the Morvan Highlands. A few of the cousins tend the land, but for the most part the village is a family shrine, preserved in time by the wealthy relatives that have gone to Paris to make their way in the world, but who return on bank holidays to tend the houses in which they grew up. There are some tourist spots a few towns over, but by and large the highlands of the Morvan are sleepy and barely integrated into the modern world. Andorra, by contrast, is one of the richest countries in the world. In the wider story of this podcast, we've seen how border regions like the Mark in Italy or the Scottish and Welsh marches can be turned into locations of immense political power for their overlords and intense misery for their inhabitants. In Andorra, we saw a situation where the borders were basically undefined. The power of the French monarchy was great, but until the Cathar Crusade, it was a way up in Paris. The powers of Castile and Aragon were also substantial, but they too were distant. This power vacuum created a place where many Andorras existed, and it was only the increasing centralization of the states of Spain and France that made Andorra unique. Andorra is a shining example of how one valley dealt with these pressures, but others were not so lucky. The other big philosophical takeaway I hope you keep with you is the role of complete dumb luck in history. Much of the story I have told today has been in terms of the incentives and clear rationales that individuals involved have had for their actions, and yet the end result is an absurdity. This isn't inexplicable. The Andorans have worked hard for their independence, just as the co-princes sought to protect their best interests, but there's no plan here. There's no Whiggish progression of history. This is a country whose founding document is a real estate deal, many of whose terms don't even involve the country. This is a dot of land located in the middle of the most widely agreed-upon borderline in modern history. This is an economy which was based for decades on burning their own crops in order to exploit a legal loophole established by their neighbors. This is a country with no resources that is full of money because rich people like to go there to engage in dangerous winter sports. This is Andorra, my favorite country in the world, and this is history in all of its banal insanity. Thank you for listening to this and my other insane episodes, and please tune in next time as we reach our final walking tour episode, Central Europe. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.